Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, how is your uh, how are you holding up during the pandemic here? I'm I'm holding up pretty good, you know. Um I'm actually going camping for the first time in my new travel trailer. I got to uh, tell you, Friday. I find that such a weird idea. I mean, here you are, uh, you grow up in New York City, uh, you grow up in Long mm-hmm. Island, and all of a sudden you become mm-hmm. a camper. Well, you know, I, I've always been a camper to, for, to a certain extent. You know, I grew up going to summer camp when I was a kid, so I went to sleepaway camp for six summers in a row. Um, and, uh, so I tent camped, you know, for many, many years and even as an adult. And then, you know, we got the pop-up, which we had for a long time. We graduated to that. And then we, uh, became really adult in the, uh, camping world and got a travel trailer. And, you know, it's so funny because for people that have never done it, they think it's so weird. Yeah. Like I, I think it's so weird. I've never done it. But once you do it, you're going to want to continue doing it. It really is a drug. <laughs> camping is a drug it is the tent was the gateway and now and now we're in a travel trailer i don't know if we'll ever have like a big big what RV, the hell like is a I travel trailer things. i don't get it i know what a pop-up is okay. what's a travel trailer travel tra- trailer is um you ever see those airstream travel you know trailers you mean where you pull that it you attach you, to that you pull it with you with your car your yeah car, that's what whatever. you got well i don't have an airstream because they're ridiculously expensive so i have a uh um a, a, a different version of that, a less expensive. So you version. got a low end airstream. Well, I wouldn't even say it's a low end airstream. It's it's just the airstreams, like the smallest one. They're yeah. called the Bambi. They're like forty five thousand dollars. Wow! I mean, it's ridiculous. What'd you and pay for tiny. yours? What? What'd you pay for yours? I'm not going to tell you what I paid for. <laughs> what is that? That's a private question? It is a private question. <laughs> too, too personal for you? What did you pay for your travel well, trailer? It was under, it was, it was, it was under 20000 Okay, under twenty. All right, now at least I have a range. I have a range. Okay. Um, more, and than what's, 10, more than 10, less than 20. Yeah, so you're going camping, and do you feel okay about that? Is uh, Are you going to maintain social distance, all that stuff, or have you thrown the rule book out? Oh, no, no. The rule book is uh, it's very strict. Actually, my neighbor who never wears a mask, he lives across the street from us. And he's, you know, he's a Trump or two, which is equally as disturbing. But he um, said to my husband the other day, because when I walk the dog, whenever I'm out, I wear my mask. Right. Me too. And what and when I run, I'll, I'll I have it like I have it around my neck. And if I'm if someone's in the distance and they're coming towards me, um, I'll put my I'll put it on. So um, he said to my husband the other day, oh, God, Sue, so strict with the mask. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, you're just being an idiot. You're an idiot with the mask. I'm strict. You're an idiot. Yeah. See, I don't know. You know, I went to the pharmacy the other day. There was somebody without a mask. I'm like, am I supposed to say somebody, say something to somebody? Am I supposed to uh, uh, talk to them personally, call the manager uh, am I supposed to call the police? What am I supposed to do if I see somebody without a mask on? I do the manager route. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't say anything to people because I people are crazy. Yeah. And I just don't trust that, you know, they're going to remember what I look like or they're going to see the car I'm getting into. 
and then they're going to murder me. <laughs> they're going to follow you back <laughs> and find you. Uh, yeah. You're the one with the travel trailer. All right. Uh, I'm really excited about today's guest. Our guest started his career writing for comics in the Catskills before becoming one of the original writers on Saturday Night Live. He was the co-creator for It's Gary Shandling Show, and he collaborated with Billy Crystal on the Tony-winning 700 Sundays. He has written 12 books, including his latest, Laugh Lines, My Life, Helping Funny People Be Funnier. Alan Zweibel joins us. Hey, Steve. Hey, Sue. Hey, Alan. Thank you so much for doing this. We really in L.A.? Yeah, we're in L.A. And, and are you in uh, New York? Yeah, I'm actually in New Jersey. I can see New York from my window. We have this pretty fantastic apartment on the Jersey side of the Hudson, where if I look one way, I can see all the way down to the Statue of Liberty. If I look to my left, there's a New York skyline. And if I go to the right... I see the, if I keep on going to my left, rather, is the George Washington Bridge and beyond. So it's pretty fantastic. Wow. Because who wants to look at Jersey anyway? Yeah. So it's better to hear what you're looking for. How's your pandemic been? You know, it's so odd. You know, it's, it's no different than anyone else's with the possible exception of me trying to sell a comedy book, promote a comedy book, you know. So it's uh a lot of the live performances that I had scheduled, one with Larry David in L.A., one with Louis Black here in New York, uh, you know, they have to be postponed. So it's a lot of virtual um, kind of things. And some of them have 900, one of them had 1,100 people. But it's not like the same being on stage with people. It's um, you don't hear any laughing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <You> just <laughs> speaking to this vacuum, and they'll put, you know they'll show you the uh, people at home, and you know some of them are eating. You know some of them are like <laughs> watching TV while they're doing this. It's hilarious. So well, you know it's crazy because just I wanted to interject is that you know I I, I used to do stand up for many years, and a lot of my friends are stand ups and they're doing vir virtual stand-up shows now on zoom and it's bizarre yeah yeah there's there's one i forgot what it's called maybe your friends are doing it it's um oh i forgot what it is it's something comedy or comedy so i can't remember but i was invited to to tune into one of them and i think because wayne fetterman is an old friend of mine and he was performing and um it was odd because, you know, and even when I do it, I'm not a comedian, but I know where the laughs are, you know, uh, because I do enough uh, TV and I do enough, uh, uh, you know, uh, speeches, you know, where I you know, I have a thing and I know it and you've got to gauge it as to, OK, they're laughing till now I'll tell my next one. No, <laughs> it's like <laughs> trying to guess what the rhythms are. You know, the uh, the book, which we both read, is so great. Um I don't even know where to start because there's so much in it. Uh, oh, that's so nice. Thank you. But uh, but I'm trying to remember if it was in the book or not. Do you remember what your very first joke was? Well, the very first joke that I got $7 for was a joke I had written for a, a Catskill comedian about a, a sperm bank because uh, they were just coming into existence at the time. And I said, they have a new thing now called sperm banks, which is just like an ordinary bank, except here, when you make a deposit, you lose interest. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that made me a professional comedy writer. I got seven bucks for that. 
So what, you know, what were those Catskills oh. days like? Take us sort of, I, you know, I've seen movies. I, I watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, I feel like maybe that's given me a glimpse into what it is. But what was it like being in those clubs? Well, first of all, when I used to go up there with my parents. We had, uh, you know, I've, there are three, uh, four kids in my family, and our parents used to take us up there on holiday weekends, three-day weekends, to the uh, big, big hotels like the Concord or Grossingers or Neville. We grew up on Long Island, and, uh, you know, these hotels were about 90 miles away, so it wasn't long, uh, you know, in the car. And... Um, you know, we would be at the hotel or we'd be at these little bungalow colonies like they portrayed in Dirty Dancing and they would have um, nightclubs there. These hotels, the nightclubs were huge. You know, until they built the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas, the Concord Hotel in the Catskills had the largest a nightclub hmm. it seated over 3,000 people so these were major major venues and I was a little boy and I became intrigued with comedy and I used to sneak into a lot of these nightclubs because I wasn't allowed in until you're like 18 all right and now I graduate college and I'm writing for a lot of these same guys that I saw as a kid and, you know, the Catskills were a little different 10 years later. The, um, you know, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, it was the, you know, it was the breeding ground for new comedians. That's what Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Tony Fields, Red Buttons, Buddy Hackett, Alan King, they all started there. And it launched their huge careers, either, either as TV stars or Las Vegas comics. And uh, now, by the time I got there in the early 70s, uh, boy, I was left with the guys who were left behind. <laughs> you know, the ones that, you know, weren't going to get uh, the big TV show or, or whatever. They were like the Willie Lomans of comedy. Hmm. They just went from one uh, hotel to another, sometimes two, three hotels a night. They would do different shows. And but so but it was still a kick to go into those same rooms and hear these guys, many of whom I had seen when I was younger, deliver jokes that I wrote in the audience laughing. Uh, after a while, I got a little tired of it because I was 21 and 22. This was right after college. And these guys were 45 and 50. So it was like writing for my my parents' friends, you know, and that wasn't my life experience. I didn't want to write, write wife jokes, you know. I, I didn't want to, you know, my experience was uh, Woodstock and Nixon resigning and Vietnam. So, you know, guys like George Carlin and Richard Pryor and Lily Tomlin and uh, David Steinberg, people who were doing more contemporary things. Yeah, they were a little bit older than me, but at least they were speaking my language. That's what I longed to do. You know, your book is so nostalgic to me, Alan, because, you know, I, I grew up in Long Island. I grew up in Belmore. Um, I'm Jewish. I went to summer camp. Uh, my parents went to bungalow colonies. We went to a place called Kessler's, which was in Hyde Park. Um, oh, wow. Sure. Yeah. In Belmore, but just so you know, before we moved to Woodmere, we lived in Wontor, which was right next door. Mm -hmm. And I was bar mitzvah at uh, Temple Bethel in North Belmore. Sure, know it well. So you I, you wrote for all of these uh, Borscht Belt guys. Now, my one of my parents' friends, I grew up with his kids, and I think you probably know him. Did you remember Mac Robbins? I remember the name. I didn't know him personally, but he was around when I started writing for those guys. I may have seen him perform, and he was very funny, if I remember correctly, but I, I never wrote for him. 
Yeah. So I grew up with a with, you know, with someone who was a stand up comic, you know, when I was a kid, which, wow. was you know, which was crazy. I mean, you know, none of my parents friends were in show business. <laughs> you know, wow. it was it was kind of a wild, wild thing. But what I wanted to say is that you, you know, you bypassed kind of the paying dues phase. You know, you were a kid. You were like in your early 20s and you were making money. As a writer, I mean, did you were you aware of how special that was at that time? Well, you know, at the time, I'm living home with my parents uh, after uh, college, right? I'm sleeping in my old bed. All my friends had gone off to medical school, law school, you know, all sorts of grad schools, you know, come that August after graduating college. Um, I started writing jokes for seven dollars a joke. And to supplement the great living I was making, writing for these guys, I took a job in a delicatessen on Hillside Avenue in Queens. So while you're going through it, you really don't know that it's, oh boy, I'm on a fast track. In retrospect, I graduated college in 72. I started making money as a writer for these guys, but not a lot of money at $7 a joke. Oh, about uh, a year later. Uh, no, not pardon me. I would say about four or five months later. And then three years after that, I get a job on this new show called Saturday Night Live. And so in retrospect, you go, wow. You know, you had money coming in from the deli. You made a few bucks here and there writing for those comics. And, um, you know, so from uh, it, it was it was sort of quick, uh, like I said. But when you're going through it, you go, when is this going to end? Am I ever going to get a break? But there are guys who would be hanging out at the clubs for 8, 10, 12 years. So you're absolutely right. It was um, relatively very quick. So. Tell me about your first meeting with uh, with Lauren Michaels, how you got the gig at Saturday Night Live. I took all the jokes those comedians wouldn't buy for me, the Catskill guys. I made it into an act for myself. Um, the plan was to go to, uh, there were two clubs in New York in these days. One was called The Improvisation, the other was called Catch a Rising Star. And uh, this is where that new breed that I was just talking about, including Larry David and uh, Robert Klein and, uh, and Billy Crystal was starting. And I, my plan was to go on stage and advertise my material with the hopes that an agent or a manager would see it and want to represent me when it came to, uh, you know, getting me a job, maybe uh, writing for a TV show, which is what I wanted to do. And I would go on stage. Sometimes I'd get laughs more times than not. I would bomb. I'd go on at one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, people from Wyoming didn't care about my suburban upbringing. Or my Hebrew school teachers, whatever it was. But uh, Lorne saw me. uh, He he, uh, thought I was one of the worst comedians ever, but he liked the material. And there was a William Morris agent uh, who submitted me to Lorne officially. And I met with Lorne um, up at his hotel. He, he was in New York. He was actually looking for writers and uh, actors for this new show that he was going to premiere in the fall called Saturday Night Live. And uh, I went home to my parents' house on Long Island, where I was living, and I stayed up two days straight, and I typed up what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes. Hmm. And I went back to the city a couple of days later for my interview with him. And I remember, boy, uh, I was sat on the edge of the bed and he pulled up a chair and I hand him this tome 
you know, with 1,100 jokes in it, and he opens the folder, he reads the first joke and just starts nodding. He goes, very good. Mm-hmm. And then he closes the binder. I'm up for two days straight. <laughs> he read one joke. And, uh, yeah, obviously he, he kept the binder. I'm sure he went through it and had to give it to the NBC executives, you know, to get there okay. But uh, to this day he will say, that the joke, you know, turned his head. So, uh, you know, that's how smart he was. He would look at one joke and know right away from the sensibility or the construction if this was somebody that he wanted for this new show. And what everybody that I know that has written on the show has talked so much about the competitiveness. Um, what was it like in the early years? I mean, you were there for the first year. I was there for the first five years. And um, it started out not being as competitive because Marilyn Miller, who was one of the original writers, said, hey, kids, let's put on a show. And that's what we did. It was the fourth grade play. Uh, Lauren said, let's just make each other laugh. And if we do, um, we'll put it on television. Because he was, he assured us that there was an audience out there, baby boomers, that uh, uh, weren't being spoken to comedically on television. He said, if we make each other laugh, he said, we'll put it on TV. And I'm telling you that it will turn people's heads and they'll tell their friends about it. And that's exactly what happened. So it was fun. Um, And then it started getting a little competitive when I was there. I I would say, especially after John Belushi did Animal House. And we came back to the show that following fall, it premiered in a summer. And now it, it became obvious, oh, this show can get you a movie. This show can get you your own TV series. You know, John appeared on uh, the cover of uh, Newsweek by himself. Mm. He didn't have Gilder on this side and Danny or Bill Murray on the other side, okay? It was just him. And um, it became a little bit more competitive. It was not a spoken thing, but I think it was subconscious. I think that there was an awareness of it. And, you know, when I interviewed fellow writers from that era and some of the actors, they all agreed that around that time, things took a little bit of a turn. And, um, you know, the show is written on Tuesday. Uh, The scripts are read on Wednesday during read-through. So Tuesday night's the big writing night. And um, people started hanging out a little bit more. You know, the writers wanted to make sure that they were in a room helping to write a sketch and, you know, you put they wanted their initials to be on top, you know, at the top of the page. Um, actors started hanging out, lobbying for roles, you know, afraid that another actor would get it had they gone home. So it, it did become, um, well, let's put it this way, a little bit more intense than it was at the beginning. So here you are, you're at your very first meeting, uh, I, I read in the book, and you meet Gilda Radner behind a potted plant. What made your relationship with Gilda so special? Uh, It was nothing more than the fact that we just made each other laugh. We were just uh, on the same plane when it came toward... We brought out the silly in each other. And um, she was 
new to New York. She grew up in Detroit, came to New York by way of Toronto, where she was in Godspell and in Second City up there. New York was my town. And even though I was four years younger and not as seasoned as her friends, you know, the Belushi's and Danny's and, uh, uh, and Bill Murray's of the world, they all came from Second City. They had the same kind of comedy, you know, and I had never seen comedy like that before where they got up and improv and did sketches. You know, I wrote jokes for stand-up comedians and tuxedos. But I, this New York was my town, and she felt like with me that she had, yeah, I acted like Big Brother. I showed her around New York. She had confidence in me because uh, she was a little spooked by the city. And it gave me somebody to write with and also speak through because we did make each other laugh. So, yeah, I wrote for everybody. I wrote the, uh, the Samurais for John Belushi. I wrote tons of sketches, lots of Weekend Update because that was mostly jokes. And that was my uh, background. But I would say that Gilda was indeed my most constant writing partner, and we created characters like uh, Roseanne, Rosanna Dana, which was a big hit. So I watch uh, the the sketches with John Belushi over the years. Um, his career was so short. I saw so few inter- interviews with him just as John Belushi. I don't know what he was really like. What was what was he like as a, as a person? John was great. John, look, he lived on the edge just like his comedy. John would run through a wall. John wielded a samurai sword. John uh, made believe he had heart attacks at the at the end of a ramp he would do on Weekend Update. Uh, he was, um, it was fast lane as, as, as they say, but you know something? Um, I remember even if he, if he insulted somebody, there was a meeting I remember where he said some negative things about some of the women writers and he felt so badly that the next day I remember him walking in with bouquets of flowers and big boxes of chocolates to give to each one as as you know as if to say I'm sorry. So uh, John's heart was huge and his warmth was uh, there and um, at the same time uh, he was a bit of a wild man. So your next gig after this was the it's uh, working with Gary Shandling. Um, well, was was that yeah. is that is that accurate? Well, it's my next television gig. Yeah, I mean, look, there was six years that uh, was after SNL and uh, it's Gary Shandling's show. And during those six years, I wrote a couple of books and I had some plays produced and um, I wrote some screenplays, um, one of which was made. But 1986, I got a phone call from uh, my manager, a man named Bernie Brillstein. Uh, he and his partner, Brad Gray, both managed Gary Shandling. And um, I flew out to LA. He was working on a special that um, needed a little help. And I read the script, thought I could be of help. And um, for me, it was like lightning striking again. It was a guy that, just like Gilda, it was a guy that um, the same things made us laugh. You know, there's an interesting thing when you write with a comedy partner, probably any partnership, but comedy, there's an alchemy there where you share the same sensibility. But you're both a little bit different. 
So one and one equals three in whatever you create. So you create something that you both wrote, but it ends up being something that neither of you could have done by yourself. And that's how it was with Gary. He had an idea for a show where he played himself, a comedian named Gary Shanling, who spoke to camera. And I had a, an idea for uh, a sitcom. I was now married with two kids. Uh, with a father of the family, um, uh, it was a comedy writer who spoke to camera. It was at the old Dick Van Dyke show. If Dick Van Dyke was able to speak to camera, we melded the two um, uh, ideas together, came up with its Gary Shandling show. And this was really revolutionary in the sense that this was the beginning of cable. This was 1986. And Gary and I created this show, and I was real proud of it. Um, you know, this is how long ago. At the beginning of the show, which lasted four seasons, we did 72 shows, Cable was not eligible for Emmy Awards. Mm. They had their own awards they called Cable Ace Awards. And they looked like <laughs> they looked like hood ornaments. These silver things that looked like they belonged on the hood of like a 1955 Chevrolet, okay? We got a bunch of those. And the last year that we did the show... We got nominated for an Emmy. It was the first year that they allowed uh, cable shows to be nominated for Emmy Awards. You know, I I would have a really hard time. I do a weekday radio show on ESPN here in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, it's funny. It's loose. Uh, we're, you know, just joking around for the most part. It would be hard for me for my partner to get all the jokes, to get all the laugh lines um, and to sort of shine over me. Has that been a challenge for you? No, not really, because I've been lucky. Um, you know, I, I, I love writing. I, I love uh, waking up at 5.30 every morning with my vocabulary and trying to figure out what order to put words in that will hold interest and uh, get laughs. So I get enough. You know, I go on late night TV shows. I, I, I'm talking to you on this podcast. I do speeches all over the country at colleges and fundraisers and corporate events. So I get out in front enough, but it still leaves me plenty of time more than enough time to do my day job. So if somebody's on stage in front of a Broadway audience or a Coliseum or whatever the venue is, and they're doing my jokes, yeah, there's a part of me. I'd be lying if I didn't say that I would want to yell out, author, author, <laughs> and up and down the aisle. <laughs> there's that part of you. I mean, I'm not that much of a saint, but at the same time, um, that's the deal I made with myself, and that comes with the territory. Do you think people are born funny? Yeah. I, I think that there's something innate um, about, I don't think it could be taught, let's put it this way. I think you're born with some sort of a molecule or a DNA strain that uh, uh, makes you look at the world a little bit askew. Now, apparently, I would say that nurturing has a little bit to do with it, which means what's the tenor of the household, your parents, your brothers and sisters, you know, how do they look at the world? Um, what kind of atmosphere was it? But I don't think, you know, that aids and abets, okay? But I don't think that anybody who's, you know, we all know people have got absolutely no sense of humor yeah. whatsoever, where they take everything literally I don't think I, I don't care who sits with them and for how long there's not a chance in hell you're going to make them funny. 
you know, it's funny how, you know, I know so many stand-up comics who actually have no sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> how are they doing? You know, I mean, well, you know, I, you know, the, the, some of them may be kind of funny on stage, but off stage, nothing, which is so crazy to me. Um, well, there's a but, slight difference, you know. I mean, off stage, so many are just dented cans, you know what I mean? When they become, <laughs> so, you know, they sit in the corner and they're very morose and they get on stage and they're a different person. It's their way of venting, you know. But they have senses, at least they know what's funny. But I'm sorry, I think I interrupted you. What were you just going to say? No, no, no. I, it was really the off stage, the, the off stage uh, sense of humor. You know, it, it just seemed to me so weird that they wouldn't get certain things, but they actually could be funny on stage and things that were so obviously funny, they didn't have a clue. They just didn't, wouldn't get it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's a fascinating character study that people, you know, and I know so many who are so serious that even off stage, if they hear a joke or something is funny, they'll acknowledge it with a head nod. But you know, laughing uh, is another thing. That's a commitment to an emotion that a lot of comedians won't make off stage, which is ironic because that's why they go on stage to get laughs. Uh, you uh, wrote a book called North and it became a movie uh, and Roger Ebert didn't like it very much. He didn't like it. <laughs> He treated, he treated it like a war crime. He didn't like it. <laughs> he hated he, his, his review, okay? And he was the most influential uh, critic in the country at the time. His review had, uh, I don't have it here. It's in my wallet, but my, you know, it's a pandemic. <laughs> but it was in the review, there was one paragraph he, where he used the word hated 11 times. I hated this movie. Hated, hated, hated. Hated, hated, hated. Hated, hated, hated this movie. Then the next sentence was, hated it. And then the next <laughs> sentence was telling why he hated it. Yeah. So and just in case you didn't realize like it. it the wrong way. He hated it. <laughs> yeah, and just in case you didn't hear me, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so I love yeah, this. I love the story in the book where you ultimately bump into Roger Ebert in in a bathroom. Well, yes, I was in Chicago and it was a, a, a book of mine. I was on book tour and I always wondered what it would be like if I ran into him because this was still early enough in the career. Yeah, I was in my early 40s, but you know, I had always written with Gary Shandling or with the other team of writers uh, on SNL. So if something I wrote didn't work, you know, there was an anonymity to it. But this was based on my book and I co-wrote the screenplay. So I was, my ass was out there. <laughs> you know, I, I had a big target on it. And I always wondered what it would be like if I ran into Roger Ebert. So years later, I was in Chicago on book tour and I'm having lunch. And I look over at that table over there and I see... Roger Ebert, who lived in Chicago, he wrote for like the Sun Times or Tribune, one of the, the, the uh, Chicago papers, and he was wearing this oversized sweater that had all the autumn colors on it. It had burnt orange and gold and puke green. You wouldn't believe this. And he got up and I, he, he, he walked out of the restaurant for a second 
And I got up, I excused myself from the table, and I found myself following him. And I had no idea what I was going to do when I caught up with him. It was like an out-of-body experience. It was almost as if I wonder what Alan's going to say to Roger Ebert. And I was just hoping that it wouldn't eventually involve the police, okay? Because I had no control. I followed him to a men's room. Now we're in the men's room. We're washing our hands, and there's that mirror, you know, uh, on the other side of the uh, vanity. And we're both washing our hands next to each other. And I look into the mirror. I go, Roger. And he looks up, and he's trying to place me. He doesn't know who I am. I go, Alan Zweibel. And the blood drains from his face. He turns white as a sheet. And I said, Roger, I just have to tell you that I hate, 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 hate that sweater you're wearing. Okay. And he smiled and I smiled. He laughed. I laughed. We shook hands. And uh, that, that ended the feud with Roger Ebert. But it lasted 10 years. You know, there's a great little story in the book that I that I want you to tell. It's the one about Henny Youngman out in front of the Friars Club when well, nobody's watching. Well, you know, something I had a feeling you might ask about that. And it's intriguing, isn't it? It's a generation or two earlier than me. Henny Youngman was a comic uh, who was known as the king of the one liners. And they used to have you know, his big catchphrase was take my wife, please. And <laughs> I saw him a million times on the Ed Sullivan show. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a comic. He was a pretty famous guy. And uh, I joined the Friars Club after I left Saturday Night Live because I didn't have an office anymore. And the Friars Club is a huge townhouse. They had a couple of rooms upstairs with magazine racks and uh, couches, you know, and phones. So I figured, okay, I'll use that as an office. And this one day, I turned down the street that the Friars Club is on. And for whatever reason, the street was totally empty. Nobody was there. That's an important part of this story. The street was totally empty. And out from a doorway, about 100 feet in front of me, pops Henny Youngman. He doesn't know I'm behind him, so he thinks he's alone. All, all that's there is an empty street. He walks across the street towards the Friars Club. And as he gets to the curb, a pigeon flutters down, lands a few feet from his feet, and he looks at it and goes, any mail for me? Now, he, he was talking to a bird. He had no idea there was anybody else around. And this is the way those guys were wired. It was a knee-jerk reaction just to be funny, whether there was an audience of a thousand or there was just a bird. You know? <laughs> So like a lot of these, uh, a lot of these older comics, you know, they, their careers, you know, went on forever. I mean, Milton Berle was telling jokes up until he was what, in his nineties, Phyllis Diller. And, you know, today, you know, I write for TV, I produce TV. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in my early sixties and, you know, sometimes I go in for interviews and, and I won't get a job because of that. Um, I mean, do you do you feel like you you I mean, you ever just can you just be funny and be relevant, you know, no matter how old you are, if you still got it? It's a wonderful question. It's something that plagues all of us. 
um, whether or not we're still funny, and if we are still funny, is there an audience out there who will think that we're funny? You know, I just completed a, a movie that I co-wrote with Billy Crystal, and uh, the movie's finished, it's edited, and we're just waiting to have it released, however that's going to be, you know, whether theaters are going to open or, you know, Netflix or, or whatever. It's called Here Today, and it stars Billy and Tiffany Haddish. And the reason I mention it is it should be a lesson to all writers because it's a script that neither of us could have written 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, because we, uh, Billy plays an aging uh, a comedy writer who's losing his grip on re reality. And he's writing a book that's dedicated to, and it's about a deceased wife that he loved dearly. And he wants to finish the book before his words run out, okay? Mm. And mm. I couldn't have written it five years ago until my dad started getting the onset of dementia. And Billy too, he had an aunt. And so when we decided to do this together, he had seen me on the Letterman show give an anecdote about this encounter that I had with a, <laughs> with a young woman who won me in a silent auction for a charity. She won having lunch with me. <laughs> and it was a disastrous lunch. It was disastrous because I, I came in from Jersey to New York and I paid for tolls, I parked my car, I paid for gas and I went and um, she had no idea who I was. Uh, she, um, she used the ticket that her boyfriend had won he was a fan and um, she just basically wanted to shove me up his butt, okay, by stealing the lunch with me. And I said to her at one point, you know, I don't want to be indelicate. How much did you pay? How much did your boyfriend pay for this ticket? And I'm used to my friends like, you know, Larry David, they pay $100,000 for, you know, just to watch him brush his teeth, you know. <laughs> so it's like here I'm having lunch. And she goes, well, 22. And I'm going, well, that's not terrible. $2,200. It's not Larry David money. But, and she says, no, 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 not $2,200. $2. I said, that was the winning bid to, get to win lunch with me. She said it started at 20 and it went up in 50 cent increments. And she, okay. <laughs> So now I hate her, and um, what happened was we were eating, and she ordered a seafood salad that was the size of the house I grew up in. And even if it was a small house, that's a big Caesar salad. Uh, not Caesar salad, seafood salad, okay? And we're talking, and she's clams, and she's chomping on an oyster, and she's spitting Well. We're talking, and all of a sudden, I'm looking, and one ear starts to get really red, and then an eye starts drooping, and her lips get bigger, and she's having an allergic reaction to the seafood salad, and I'm wondering, when does my obligation, you know, at this lunch... And well, being the idiot that I am, I ended up not only getting her an ambulance and accompanying her to Lenox Hill Hospital, I bought her an EpiPen. She had no insurance. <laughs> so what cost her $22 cost me like 1100 So I tell this story on The Letterman Show. Billy calls me up the next day and said, why don't we make that the first scene between an older guy and a younger woman, like a May-December relationship, and see where it takes us. So back to your question question 
as we were writing the script, we just didn't want it to be a May-December kind of a romance thing. Uh, and Billy came up with the idea since we were both going through people that we loved having dementia. What if we said that Billy's character, the older comedy writer, was uh, experiencing the onset of it and it was a race to get the book done? before uh, he lost all of his words. And he meets mm. Tiffany Haddish, and those scenes are hilarious, because she's hilarious, and the uh, relationship works, but she becomes his muse. And at the end of the movie, you'll cry. And mm. I'm telling you, the reason I'm telling you this story is, I think that if we stay in our own lane, meaning whatever our life experience, I, I turned 70 the other day, you know, SNL, I was 25. How what did this happen? How did this happen? Okay. And so I get asked a lot, do you wish you still wrote for SNL? Well, my answer is, well, I miss the activity. I miss writing something on Tuesday and seeing it, you know, get a laugh uh, in front of an audience on uh, Saturday. You know, you, you can write something on Saturday and uh, put it into Weekend Update and we'll get a laugh that night. So, you know, it's um, that activity uh, I miss, the camaraderie. But if I'm honest with myself, you know, I'd sound like an old man trying to figure out, you know, what what the young ones are <laughs> laughing at. Right. You know, I, I don't know who half the hosts are. I have to ask our youngest child. And she tells me, oh, he stars in a show that I never heard of that's been on for seven years on a network I never heard of. So I think that if you're honest with yourself, this is who I am. This is where I live. Uh, this is what's bothering me. This is my life. I think that there's a certain authenticity that you write with. And um, it doesn't all have to be personal, but I don't think we should pander. And I think that whatever we write or whatever we say on stage will ring as true and there will be an audience for it. Uh, last thing for you, Alan. Uh, just a couple of years ago was the... I hope I answered your question. <laughs> you did, Alan. Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, you, you were there for the 40th anniversary of uh, Saturday Night Live. You were yeah. one of the first. You were one of the pioneers on, on that show. What was it like being in that room? It was, I, I don't even think I have words to describe it because you. I got off the elevator, you walked into a reception area where there was a cocktail party which um, preceded the actual show itself. And uh, I met my wife, Robin, on the show. She was a production assistant. Uh, so she knew everybody there, you know. And uh, so it was our alma mater, if you want. But we were only there for five years. This was the 40th year. There were 35 other years. So I saw some old friends. I saw people like Candace Bergen and Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine Newman, people that I had worked with and I was there, Penny Marshall, okay? But then I look around and I see people who'd worked there since. Yeah, I knew Paul Simon from when I did it, but Mick Jagger was there. Franken was now a senator, all right? <laughs> Jimmy Fallon. Uh, I went to the bathroom and I went to a urinal and I'm peeing in between Eli Manning and Peyton Manning. <laughs> and to my knowledge, it was the first time I'd ever urinated between two all-pro quarterbacks, wearing a tuxedo, by the way, okay? And so you're just awestruck, Spielberg and Whoopi, and, you know, and so in answer to one of your earlier questions, um, as a writer, you come to, come to grips 
with the fact, okay, you're going to be somewhat invisible, you know. But I treated this reunion like I did any high school reunion. I went on a diet <laughs> about six months earlier because I didn't want, you know, you know, Bill O'Reilly, who I didn't know, to say, gee, it looks like Zoy Bell put back that 35 pounds he took off, you know. Uh, so – uh, but there was that. But you also take a little bit of inventory. What have I done since I left this place? Just like when you're in a high school reunion, a college reunion, you know, whether we like to admit it or not. OK, what have I done since? And I took a little bit of inventory and I went, all right, wife, three kids. Uh, I think at that time was only two, maybe three grandchildren. I have five. We have five now. I looked at some of the stuff that I've done and I felt okay about myself. So I went, okay, I got rid of any of that, those insecurities. But you still, I was awestruck, you know. And now we went into 8H, which is the a legendary um, studio that the show has done. And I'm seated with a bunch of the other writers from my and other eras and watching the show. And it was a combination of a couple of things. It was, you know, I go to the show every so often these days. As a matter of fact, Robin and I were at the last show before you know, everything went dark because of the pandemic. So the last live show in the studio was Daniel Craig was the host. And I get the feeling every time I'm there, it's like going to an old high school football game and you're going uh, at your old mm -hmm. high school and you're rooting for it and you're laughing. And but you also see the ghosts. You see, um, I look, you know, I don't mean literally, but, you know, the last time I was here, you know, doing a show, you know, Gilda was alive, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Lucy died. Um, you know, he had already left his show and he died, but I could still see John doing any, one of my samurai sketches and uh, other writers like Herb Sargent and Tom Davis and Michael O'Donoghue, who is one of the architects of the show. You know, he had created the National Lampoon. So there's that nostalgic thing. And I'm watching the live show, which has whatever they were doing currently, the current cast and a mixture of the current cast. And, you know, they would... Uh, you know, they would uh, do mashups in a sense. So you'd have Weekend Update with Tina Fey and Jane Curtin. And I think Amy Poehler was the third, but I'm not sure. Okay, so they would do that. There was a continuum there. And then on the uh, monitors, they would run sketches or commercial parodies from our years hmm. and the few years hmm. after our years. And so you have that. It was a bombardment in a good way of the senses it was my god look what we were so lucky to have been a part of look what we contributed to look what look at this ride and look at the opportunities that it provided it was a highlight i don't know anybody that you could speak to who was there who didn't have this feeling well, listen, uh, Alan, the book is called Laugh Lines, My Life Helping Funny People Be Funnier. It's a great book. I really had fun reading it. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys having me. Thanks, Alan. Take Thanks, care. Alan. Thank you very much. There you have it. Alan Zweibel, a charming guy, really, really funny. The book is really fun. I love that Henny Youngman story. The, oh, the Henny Youngman. Yeah, 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 totally. The, the, the bird, and it's just him and the bird, and Henny says, you got any mail for me? It's like, funny people just got to be funny people. And you know what? I, I understand what you're saying about uh, comics and how uh, there's certain 
there's some misery when they're not on stage. Is that kind of what you were getting at with them? It wasn't so much the misery, but it was just the bizarre the what the bizarreness to me that someone could be funny on stage and just not funny off stage and it and had nothing to do with being miserable it wasn't their temperament it was that they really had no sense of humor <laughs> you're like you you could be like hanging out with okay like people. name names name names no I'm not gonna name anybody. name one name one I'm not gonna no I'm not gonna name, name one name name one name I, I, I'm not gonna name anybody it's a podcast. But, I'm not going to name anybody. I mean, and some of these people, you know, aren't really famous people, but I just, yeah. you know, in my travels of all my years of doing stand up, um, I, I have come across um, handfuls of, of, of comedians that were just not funny. Do you, <laughs> you miss know? doing stand up? Um, sometimes I do. You know, I mean, we've talked about this. I mean, I've, I've kind of floated back in and, and out. And um, sometimes I do. And then other times it's like, it's 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 such a commitment and i just it's just not my life right now you know you can't do it once every couple of months no your you life can't. is in a trailer um my life is in a trailer that's right well there's a lot there's a lot to be written about that yeah but it's just you know it's 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 a lifestyle that has kind of come and gone for me you know i don't hang out in clubs you have to go on stage a lot you have to own it you you have to know it um it's got to just be innate i'm thinking about starting i'm thinking about starting oh you've been saying that for 20 something years (laughs) (laughs) i know but i i think the time is right yeah, the time is right now that you can't be on stage. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the one guy that starts at 55. Like, nobody starts at 55, right? Well, yeah, there are people that started later in life. Well, Rodney Dangerfield started at 45. But, you know, every now and then, you know, like, I guess from a, like America's Got Talent, you know, some older person would show up. But that's like there. hacky. America's Got Talent's hacky. Well, I'm saying, but, you know, some of these people, you know, it's like the guy with the ventriloquist. It's like the guy with the ventriloquist dummy who has a show in Vegas. Now it's like that guy goes on America's Got Talent. You know, that guy. Yeah, I do know that guy. (laughs) Whatever his name is. I don't I don't I don't think, you know, it's ever too late to do it if you're funny. You know, you think I I can do it? I think. Do you have do you have belief in me? Um, (laughs) it's tough, Steve. (laughs) I don't know. You're gaslighting me. <laughs> Look, I think you're a very, very funny guy. I think you're a very, very funny guy. Um, but, you know, when you're on stage, it's a it's a whole nother animal. You yeah. know, you're you're on radio. No one can see you. It's a different. It's so different because uh, different things kind of like set in, you know, like, oh, God, everybody's looking at me and mm-hmm. they're not laughing. And, you know, some people some people can handle that and some people just can't they yeah. freeze and 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 they can't just kind of okay go with well it. you you talk me out of it that speaks to my commitment <laughs> that's all it took to talk me out of it i'm done i'm calling it a career i i just think that you say that just to rile me every uh every five years you'll I tell do. me that i think i'm gonna do stand-up <laughs> I'm, I'm expecting to hear this from you. You can open uh, for years. me. You can open I'm, for I'm, me. I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna write this date down, and then I'm gonna see what happens in five years. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Sue, it's been a pleasure as always. Alan Zweibel, great guy. 
Um, you never know when these uh, we're doing a lot of these podcasts. So uh, make sure you subscribe, rate and review. Sue, I'll see you next week. See you, Steve. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review. We'll see you next week for an all new episode of Culture Pop.